talking about the resurrection of Christ. But of course, between those times, and this is not the only time to talk about this particular subject, but there is what we might even call one of the, the central events in the history of time. Now, when we, we could probably sit and discuss for a while what exactly might be the greatest event of time because some people would say, well, it's, it's the birth of Christ. It's the fact that Christ came to this earth. He humbled himself, became as a human, and came to this earth. And there's a sense in which, which yes, that was necessary and, and a great event. Most people would probably say, well, it's, it's the death of Christ because without his death, without the shedding of his blood, we would not have the hope of heaven, and, and that's true. But even as we have as we usually think about in connection with those things, while the death of Christ might be considered the central event in the history of time, we also know that three days later was a pretty central event to the history of time because if he had come to this earth, which was great, and he had died, which was necessary in a sense, and he didn't rise again, he would not have fulfilled the prophecies. He would not have fulfilled his promises. And we would kind of have a problem there with the things that he had said. So really, of course, from his birth to his death, to his resurrection, all of it is important, but it is important for us to consider his death as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul says, For indeed Christ was sacrificed for us. He was sacrificed for us. And then in Luke chapter 23, specifically verse number 33, I don't know if you've been going through your daily Bible reading or read through the Bible in a year, but, but as you come to this particular section, it's one of those that you would kind of pass over. I mean, honestly, it's one that you've read so much, myself included. We read it so many times, and it's not the words that are in red, and, and you read it sort of an account of it in all four of the gospel accounts. And so we kind of, it's really easy to pass right over not only verse 33, but this particular phrase. Luke records for us, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. You see, that phrase that we want to examine this morning, there they crucified him. Four simple words in our English language, but says a whole, whole lot about what was going to take place, what did take place there in those moments, in those hours. And I think we can encourage ourselves this morning to think a little more deeply about all four of those words. The first word, of course, is there. And let's think about the place together this morning as we think about the death of Christ. Most of this will not be new. Some of it might be background or a little information that maybe you didn't know or hadn't thought of in a while. But of course, we think about there. Where was there? Well, it was the place. And the place, depending on the version that you have in front of you, and not only that, but let me insert here, also depending on the gospel account that you're looking at. Whether you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you may see different words that are used in different places. The word Golgotha is the Hebrew or Aramaic word for skull. And so also here at the end of your outline, and, and also depending on, again on the version or the place in the Bible that you're looking, you will see it called the place of the skull. During the course of translation, and as the Bible was translated over the years, it was translated, of course, into and out of Latin, but the word, the Latin word for Golgotha would have been Calvary. It's where we get our word Calvary here. This is the same place, of course, and depending on which of the gospel accounts, you might see something a little different, but it is the same account of what took place here. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 through 34, and then again, in John, John chapter 19, verses 16 through 18, 
It records for us that he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called Hebrew, which is in Hebrew, or is called in Hebrew, excuse me, Golgotha. There's a few things that we can say for sure. It was outside the city walls. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 12, Hebrews 13, 12, the Hebrew writer records, Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate. As we think about this particular location, unfortunately, like many things, we cannot walk right to it and put our, our feet on that ground and say, this is it. Uh, in particular, there's some locations that might be uh, similar. There are some places that people might think. Although I would caution you that, that you know, like I do and many people do, that when we have locations and things from the past, we sometimes elevate those above other things, right? People would want to go there, and then they might say, well, I've been there, and that would suffice for some kind of action. But we don't know the exact place. But there are a lot of details that are unknown, but there are a few other things. One thing, or a couple things that are known. Number one, things that are known. It was a place of execution. Uh, this was not a random spot. They weren't walking along the way, and somebody say, oh, look, let's just stop right here. This place, this uh, Calvary, this place of the skull was a place of execution. We might say as well, number two, that it's known, what was known about it, as we said just a moment ago, was that it was outside the city. It was outside the city of Jerusalem. You may have heard this phrase, I believe it's a song, may have been done by different people, but this idea of the Via Dolorosa or Dolorosa, it was a processional route through the old city, and it was most likely the route that Jesus would have taken. It would have been led through, through the old city and out to this place of execution. Those are things that we can say that we do know somewhat for sure, but there's a couple things we don't know. Well, number one, we don't know the exact site. As we said just a second ago, we cannot walk to a particular place if you were to visit those lands, those areas, and say this is, you know, the place where his cross went into the ground. We don't know that exactly. We also don't exactly know why it was called the place of the skull. Many people think that it maybe looked like a skull. It was shaped, this hill was shaped like a skull. Some people believe that there may have been actual skulls surrounding this particular area, almost like a, a ceremonial site, and it was surrounded by skulls, human skulls, and then they would walk into that area then to have these crucifixions. Uh, some people say, well, that wouldn't be true because of the Jews' uh, process of burial and the way they took care of the body, so that might not have been true, but we don't know for sure, but it was called the place of the skull. There's one other thing that we might say we possibly know. According to Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 39, we might say that we possibly know that it was near a road. Matthew 27, 39 says, those who passed by hurled insults. Now again, that may be reading too much into what it means by those who passed by. Uh, someone might you know, walk by something that's going on and not be near a road and say, well, I passed by. People could have been just walking by. They might have known uh, obviously known these crucifixions were going on, but it's also possible that it was near a road. Now, all of those things to say, all of those details to say, it's not exactly pertinent or doesn't, of course, really matter to Jesus giving his life, shedding his blood, but it does ca cause us to think about this place that they were going there. What was that place? Well, it was Golgotha or Calvary, the place of the skull. Number two, let's think about the word they, their they. And of course, they was the people. Now, that's a very broad term. I know uh, we, of course, don't have a list of names of people who were there. It was probably a mixture of people. 
We know we can say in a general sense that it was the Jews. Uh, We know that uh, it had to possibly be the leaders of the people. We think about the Sanhedrin. We think about the elders. Those men who were the leaders, sometimes there were 60, sometimes there were 61 elders in this Sanhedrin. They would have probably been or possibly been a part of this, and yet the the people are involved. Did you know if you look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 47, that's the account of Jesus in the garden as Judas is coming up to him. They're going to, of course, cut off the ear of Malchus at that time. But Matthew 26, 47 records for us that Judas didn't come just himself, and we know that. Judas didn't just come with himself and about four bodyguards or or policemen. It says the multitude. That it began, what happened with this crowd, I want you to consider this morning, is that it began as a multitude. Whether that's 50 or 100 or hundreds or thousands, it began, according to inspiration here of the Holy Spirit, began as a multitude. It certainly was a mixture of people, and they are the people. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 16. If I could walk you through a couple of the, or all the gospel accounts here, just to point out a couple of other things that we know. Matthew 27 and verse 16. This they, the people, were so upset that they wanted a notable, Matthew records for us, a notable prisoner released. We know, of course, that's Barabbas. That the custom was that at this time of the feast and at the time uh, of these things going on, that it was customary that Pilate would release someone to them. And they're not going to, they didn't choose the best person. Well, you know what? He was accidentally accused. He didn't really do anything. He was in there, but he's really innocent. Let's get him out. No, they chose a notable prisoner. He was accused of being a part and leading a rebellion. He was accused of murder. This is how upset they were. The people were. there. they. Who was the they? Well, it was folks that were upset enough at Jesus that they wanted a, a murderer. They wanted a killer to be released amongst them. Most of us would say, why in the world? But it just begins to point, to point towards who they were. That's Matthew and Mark. Mark chapter 15 and verse 11. Mark records for us, Mark 15, 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas. I think we have in our mind our, our, this picture in our mind of, of Pilate and Jesus standing up on this balcony. I mean, almost similar to this kind of setup as we have here, an elevated stage or a balcony and the people down below. And we imagine a, a throng of a crowd of people who are gathered there. And as I read this and was reminded of this occasion, it almost seems like as the people rise and they fall, as they shout and they cheer and then maybe they get quiet, the chief priests almost with their heads heads bowed with their hands possibly in robes or long flowing garments or just walking among the people maybe continually whispering crucify him maybe just nudging someone again to encourage them to be fired up and to say something and to call for his crucifixion stirring up the crowd You've seen examples of this. We've seen it in the history of mankind, certainly in movies depicted for us. But when you get a crowd of people together, it's very dangerous. Even when maybe someone is trying to calm everyone down, all it takes is someone amongst the crowd or on the backside to be stirring everyone up. And that's exactly what the chief priests were doing here. That's Matthew and Mark. But in Luke, Luke chapter 23 and verse 21, they shouted, Mark 23, 21, they were shouting above everything and everything and everyone 
and everything that was happening at that time. Notice again there in Luke 23, this time verse 23, the New King James says they were insistent. They were demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. This multitude, or what began as a multitude, is now in a whipped up frenzy. This great crowd of people that are shouting, chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And of course, John, John chapter 18 and verse number 38. John 18 verse 38, also John 19 and verse 4. Also John 19 and verse 6. Three different times he is declared innocent. Three different times Pilate is going to walk out and say, I find no fault in him. What a travesty of justice that takes place here. Who is they? Well, it's a lot of folks who are whipped up into a frenzy, who are shouting, who are causing trouble, and it doesn't matter if there's an innocent verdict. It doesn't matter if somebody says, I'm not doing it. I find no fault in him. They want him crucified. But, of course, the point that we want to begin to make this morning is it's not just they, but it's also we. We are responsible because he died for our sins. I think it's really easy for us to look back and to point the finger and to blame them and say, well, you know what? If they had been whipped up into a frenzy, well, I would have just gone on the other way. You know, I would have just stayed to the side. I would have tried to calm everybody down. But it's because of us as well. We might not have been there in the moment, but we are responsible because he died for our sins. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world we don't like to take blame very often at all with anything in this world in our human nature our human lives but we are responsible because he died for our sins Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8 but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 Verses 14 and 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's that other important part that we keep referring to. There they, yeah, they. Luke is recording for us, as the others do, history. There they, in that moment, were involved. But let us not forget that we are in need of a Savior, that we needed his blood, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So yes, they are the people who are gathered there, and it is a crowd, it is a mixture. But yes, we are involved as well. And of course, they are going to crucify him. That's the penalty. That's what was needed, even though he was innocent. That was the penalty that was going to take place there. There they crucified him. Now, when we think about crucifixion, it was, first of all, we believe, invented by the Persians. If you think about the Persians, you go all the way back to around the time uh, 500 or 522 B.C. that is kind of believed that, that crucifixion came onto the scene. 
King Darius or King Darius, you may know that name from the Old Testament, as well as the name the Babylonians. But Darius had 3,000 Babylonians crucified when he conquered that particular area. Do you know, I know you know, how awful crucifixion is when we think about the crucifixion of one or of three, as we're talking about here. Can you imagine 3,000 crosses? Maybe not all in the exact same moment, but certainly 3,000 people who were crucified. Alexander the Great was said to have crucified 2,000 military men or men of military age when he overtook a city. And in 71 B.C., there was, the history records for us that around the year 71 B.C., there was a slave revolt and about 6,000, 6,000 recaptured slaves were crucified on the Appian Way, on that Roman road, great Roman road, the Appian Way. 6,000 people were crucified. It was invented by the Persians, but as we see in our particular account, it was perfected, and I use that term very carefully because I hate to say that, but it was perfected by the Romans as the ultimate execution by torture. Should we use the word perfected or perfect for something that is so awful? It makes me sick inside to say that or think that. But yes, it was perfected in a sense by the Romans. They made it as disgusting and awful and terrible as it can be. And I'll just go ahead and say here that I don't want to get into the details this morning. Perhaps you've heard a lesson by other preachers or maybe at a gospel meeting or something by those who go through those great details. And I think it is important for us to consider those things, although I don't want to do that in this particular lesson this morning. I think I've shared with you before that I I did a lesson similar one time when I preached at the Lake Hills congregation and a lady got up and walked out and didn't think much of it because people get up and have to use the restroom or get out for some reason. And I didn't think much of it, but she met me in the lobby during the closing song or certainly right after the service. And she said, I'm sorry that I got up. I apologize. She said, but I cannot listen to those things. She said, it makes me sick. It gives me nightmares. And I think there needs to be a balance. I understood her saying that. I appreciate her having that sentiment. I think we need to hear it to some extent so that we understand exactly what he went through. But it was the ultimate execution by torture. Scripture records for us that he was there from 9 a.m. on Friday to 3 p.m. 9 a.m. on Friday to 3 p.m. It was about 12 p.m. that darkness overtook all the land. And by the way, that's a supernatural darkness. There was no, there was no blocking out of the sun in the sense there was no natural eclipse, I guess I might be trying to say. No natural eclipse that was taking place because of that time of year. But yet there was a supernatural darkness that overtook the land at about the 12th hour. And of course, about the third hour, he cries out from all the torture, from all the blood loss, and he gives up his spirit. Mark chapter 15, verses 24 and 25 record for us that it was about the third hour and they crucified him. The average, average, the usual average that a person might make it uh, was 36 hours. That, that Again, just trying to do my research. Some people believe the average a person might make it 36 hours. Some people might even made it days, multiple days. Jesus made it six hours. And not that he got off light. I don't mean that to be irreverent or silly, but, but it's not that he got off light, that that was easy, because we know the suffering he went through, but that's as long as he made it. It was six hours there on the cross. You know, 
I, I believe that Hollywood can't touch what took place there. Uh, but if we try to imagine, some of you possibly have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ a few years ago. Uh, many folks only watch it one time because of how hard it is to actually watch. It's another one of those things that if you can, I would suggest it to help us think in our mind about exactly what he went through. But I also know that, that nothing that Hollywood or directors or cameras can do can touch the suffering that he actually went through. It might can give us a visual it might can allow us to try to imagine, especially as we go through our times of partaking the Lord's Supper together to think about his suffering, but they crucified him. And that entails so much more than we can even get into this morning. And of course, finally, they crucified him. Let's think about the person for just a minute. We already said he was innocent. I mean, it's one thing to go through this anyways. It's another thing to go through it as an innocent man. He was innocent. He was also merciful through it. Do you remember in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34 that he cries out, Father, forgive them. Is that what you'd say? That's not what I'd say probably. Hanging there, people already having taken my skin and my blood, hanging me on a cross. I wouldn't want to say forgive them. Not only was he innocent, but he was also merciful. We know that he was humble. If you have your Bibles, you can look in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 because we know that he was humble as well. Paul writes to those in Philippi and says, let this mind be in you. Well, what, Paul? What is it that we're supposed to do? How do we know what mind we're supposed to have? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He was innocent. He was merciful. He was humble. And yes, Jesus purchased with his blood eternal life to all those, for all those who obey him. We sang it just a moment ago. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The Hebrew writer says it in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Though he was a son, I imagine there, though he was a king, though he was the person that wouldn't have to do it, he could have picked somebody else, he could have sent someone else, he was a son. Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all. One of those important little words in the Bible, all who obey him. He purchased with his blood eternal life for those that obey him. We're familiar with Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. We often sing it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He was the son of God who did not have to suffer in a sense, but yet he did. He came, he gave his life, he gave his blood, he died that awful, awful death. And John would say in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 
In this life, nothing can provide what we, we exactly need or want. Uh, sure, we can have some fun, we can have some pleasure, but if we want to live, we want to live eternally, we needed him to be crucified. But while there is so much that is packed into that statement, even as we've tried to break it down just a little bit, there they crucified him. It is certainly something to consider. But this morning, as we conclude the lesson, I want to give you one final thought. And if you're still there in Hebrews, you might notice Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 6. Hebrews 6, we might go back and grab verse number 4 to, to think about the whole context. As the Hebrew writer is talking about people who fall away, that it is possible that we can come to know Christ and then turn our back on him or fall away. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Notice, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. You see, the question for us as we conclude these thoughts is, do you crucify him again? You see, it's one thing to stand up here and, and preach with passion or emotion and consider the crucifixion and to think about what exactly happened in those moments in those hours that he hung on that cross and died? It's another thing to think that maybe I can crucify him again with the way that I live. Now certainly we're not putting him on the cross. He died once for all. And there's even some translation thoughts here that it doesn't necessarily say again, but the idea is that we crucify him ourselves. But you certainly understand the point, even as that verse concludes, that we can put him to an open shame. My thought process for you this morning as we begin to conclude these thoughts is it can be very easy to think about this phrase and say, there they crucified him. And we wag our finger and we point backwards and we blame those in the past and we say how awful it was that there they crucified him. But do we crucify him again? Do we put him to an open shame with our lives? You see, there was a multitude of people who were gathered there on that day. There was also a multitude of people, we might say, who were going to be gathered just a few days later in Acts chapter 2. Because you see, while to think about what took place on that hill, on that cross, is awful to think about, we also know that one of the greatest events of all time took place just three days later. Because while they crucified him as an awful thought, that was not the end. It wasn't over. Because he was going to rise again. And we are thankful this morning as we think about these things. And we're about to sing this song that's been selected. That through its words we might encourage you. We get to participate in the exact same thing. And with a lot less pain. And a lot less blood loss. And yes while we sometimes have to suffer. And set aside family. And set aside earthly pl pleasures here. That we want to have. It's a lot less than what he went through. But praise be to God. We can participate with him. In a death burial and resurrection we're thankful for those who keep our baptistry prepared that we can have it ready at any time if you're interested in becoming a christian obeying god's simple plan of salvation we throw it up here on the slide very quickly usually at the end of the lesson but we try to always give the encouragement that if you're here this morning and you want to know more about what it means to become a christian to be added to the church by the lord 
we would study with you as soon as possible, even this day, because it is the greatest decision that a person can make. We sometimes even say that, you know, I reckon that God could have done it any way he wanted to. He could have had us to run three miles or to go to Jerusalem or do anything, I guess, to be saved. But when we put it in context of this phrase, there they crucified him, we begin to see the relevance. We begin to see the importance because we can go and die just as he did. We can be buried just as he was. Although for us it's in a watery grave of baptism and just as he rose from the grave, we can rise again to walk in newness of life. Having our sins washed away by his blood, to be added to the church. Maybe you're here this morning and it's easy to forget about some of these things. It really is. It's uncomfortable. I mean, nobody wants to think about the crucifixion. Nobody wants to think about pain and suffering. So it's easy to block it out and not think about it anymore. And what happens when we do that then is we begin to live the way we want to live. We forget about having our sins washed away. We sin. We separate ourselves from God. And so we'll be singing to encourage you as well this morning. If you are here, if you are a Christian, a child of God, but you stand in need of forgiveness of sins, we would love to encourage you with the words of this song as well, that you would make a change. You can certainly do it where you sit or where you'll stand in just a moment. Between you and God, you can certainly come forward in just a moment. One of our elders will be here to encourage you to uh, listen to maybe what you'd like to share with the congregation to pray with you and for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you just are simply lost in life. Maybe you're struggling with things going on and you like the prayers of the family that is assembled here. We would love to encourage you in that way as well. The point is, is that no one has to leave worrying or wondering about these things. You can become a Christian or you can come back to him, even now as we stand together and as we sing.